Today's teaching text uh, comes from Exodus 12, 1 through 28. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community in Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share with one of their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. This is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do not work at all on these days, except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of, is- out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast, from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. And anyone, whether foreigner or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop. Dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask, 
What does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks be to God. And thank you, uh, thank you, G, for announcing that huge news that we're going to have a space to meet on the 12th. Couldn't be more enthusiastic about it. It's uh, such a beautiful thing. And uh, so much has, has happened, you know, since, since COVID hit. Um, I feel like David Lowe came onto our team, and then, like, the next week we were online. And, and I know you guys have, have, have seen him and heard him teach, and many of you know him. But I'm just excited for you to get to, to, to know David and, and, and Genevieve, uh, who's just joined our team in the last stretch, uh, so much more than you already do, because they are just people who are bursting with the love of God and uh, who God has given a particular ministry in our church. And... Friday night, we met uh, for the beginning of this, this state treat, which we're wrapping up this evening in uh, Park Slope Christian Tabernacle, which is where our church first met uh, 12-something years ago uh, for our first services. I mentioned that on, on that evening. Well, the Montauk Club, um, who... Uh, I can't tell you how much work that uh, our team has put into finding a space. Melissa Bray actually made initial contact with Montauk Club for us to be able to meet there. Uh, so many people have, have prayed about this space, but um, even before our church ever met, we came to the Montauk Club asking them if there was a possibility that we could meet there. And so, I don't know, there's something about just, I feel like God is bringing us back to these beginning places, those initial building block spots uh, for our church and uh, it's, it's encouraging to me uh, to know that, you know, God is such a detailed storyteller. And, um, you know, I feel like it came through in what both Maggie and Jackie shared. Not any part of your story is lost. And so if you're in a time of confusion or doubt or fear or pain or, or even hope, just know that the, the season that you're in is not, you know, what defines your life. And uh, it's incredibly powerful to know that God often brings back uh, these aspects of what feel like more, the more desolate times of our life to, um, to show us that he was there all along caring for us and, and maybe even refining our hearts, teaching us things about his true, his true character as Jackie so beautifully reminded us. And so um, I don't know uh, what you felt about hearing the story of God proclaiming that his people should uh, observe this Passover festival. There's a lot of wild details. There's aspects of it to our modern ears that feels primitive and strange. And, and yet it is something that seems to be very dear to the heart of God, very dear to the heart of Israel, even, even still. And a part of our story as followers of Jesus in this long lineage of God telling a story of, of salvation and redemption. And so... Um, I was, I was praying for our church. I was praying for this weekend. I mentioned this a little bit on Friday. And how do you cast vision for the new season of our church? And I just quite frankly felt like I don't have that. And God, I don't know what to do about not having it. But if you have something you could say, that would be wonderful. Uh, it's hard to envision for people that you haven't been with. And it's hard to get your arms around a body that you haven't been, that you haven't been seeing. It's hard to spark your imagination uh, when we just simply haven't been together. And so uh, I, I, I mark this weekend, this state treat, this worship service, and, and this fall as an opportunity for us to, to reconnect 
connect with God uh, together. Of course, God's been there through the whole time, but uh, for us to reconnect with God together, to remember our true identity as a church. And so I want to tell you, those three Sundays in September when we're meeting at the Montauk Club, we're going to be revisiting the central sort of building blocks of our heart as a church. What has God called us to be? Who has God called us to be? What does that look like? And it's not some new fancy vision. It's presence, formation, and love. It's the same things God's been speaking to us, I think, since the beginning and, and getting clearer and clearer in our articulation of how to, how to live that out. But as I was sitting on a park bench, I mentioned this again on Friday, and praying, God, would you show me what to sh- say to your church in, in this time? And, and how, how, do we, how do we begin again? It's, it's, sometimes it feels discouraging and painful to be beginning again. And God really simply directed my heart uh, to the Passover and to how, uh, how God directed his people to mark, remember, commemorate, celebrate Passover. And I thought, oh, that's fantastic, except God, I don't know if you know what month it is, but that's, it's a celebration out of season. And of course, God knows what month it is. Um, but that was the first thing that came to my mind. It's like, are you sure, God? Because it's not, we're not, Passover happens in the spring around, around Easter. Uh, but nevertheless, I really truly believe that God has had something, has something for us in looking back at the Passover for this particular moment of transition. Not that we're out of the woods with, with all the COVID stuff by any means or, or everything's going to be totally different from here on. But I think in this time of transition with what we've been through over the last two years, I believe God has something really particular to say to us as individuals and as a church around Passover. And then today, as a little confirmation, just to tell you, you can trust God. I'm going to say that a bunch tonight. Um, but for me, this was huge. I was, I was going on a very painful run that I wasn't looking forward to, and I was listening to my daily Bible um, and I was reminded of the story of Hezekiah. And after a long, I won't tell you the whole story. Uh, I got other stuff to preach. But after a long and difficult period in the nation of Israel, Hezekiah called for the people to return to the Lord. And what he asked them to do was to come to Jerusalem and celebrate Passover. But the, but the issue was, it was already too late. Passover, the time for it had already passed. And so Hezekiah celebrated a Passover out of season. And it was just a little confirmation as I was jogging through the streets of Brooklyn that God indeed had spoken. And even though this is a Passover out of season, God has something in particular to call our hearts home, to call our hearts back to him, to, to his presence, to a journey of formation that happens step by step in love. And that love uh, defines us and becomes the expression of our life to the world. And so in Hezekiah, if you know, Hezekiah did it, there's a track record already. This, with Hezekiah, it was a move of unity in a divided kingdom. I think we could use a, a move of unity in a divided country. There was a great remembering of God's words and actions. Let's not forget, we have built in forgetters. And over and over, God says, I want you to remember what I've done. I want you to remember what I've said. I want you to remember my actions and my calling. There was great worship, massive celebration. And and there was tons and tons of joy. I thought, God, what if you would do that in our midst? Would there be a, a, you know, a, a move of unity, remembering your words in action, remembering who we truly are, great worship and much joy? I, I wouldn't pass that up. They even got so into it, they celebrated Passover twice. They did a whole other second seven days in Hezekiah's celebration out of season. So I'm trusting God has some words for us as a church in this specific moment. 
As, as Carrie read, God instructed Moses and Aaron very clearly that this was to be a ceremony for them for generations. Um, of course, that meant that there would be those who kept this festival who hadn't experienced the event themselves, um, but that this observance would speak to them in their time and their place and would remind them of their God, of Yahweh, of his rescuing, saving grace, and their place in the family. And then, of course, it's in the meal of the Passover. We said on Friday, the, the new story begins right in the middle of the old one, right in this celebratory moment of the old story. And Jesus is celebrating Passover, and he very bizarrely interrupts the liturgy of the Passover meal, and he gets into this weird language almost of an engagement or a marriage marriage being, being uh, arranged, and he passes a cup of covenant, and he institutes the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, which we're also going to receive this evening if I can get through this sermon fast enough. Okay, you have that coming, folks. I, I'm assuming you're just chuckling lo loosely behind your mask as I make these jokes. You're doing great. I'm doing great. We're, we're going to keep rolling. So we see Jesus giving us this Eucharist, the meal of his body uh, and blood in the middle of the Pas Passover. He, right, John the Baptist, his cousin, when he passes through the water, when he baptizes him, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so these two, these two salvation stories anchor our faith. Uh, we, believe that, we believe that one points to the other, but they both show us the nature of God, the reality of the world, how salvation works, how we can enter into union with God, how we can become uh, part of the family, participants in this inheritance, and then something about how we should live. So we're going to look at this Passover festival with you well, one more time this, this, this evening. And, and the rabbis... Um, even before Jesus' day. And Jesus, uh, if you ask you know, uh, a scholar or you just, you just come to the story of the Gospels with a blank slate and you say, what's Jesus up to? What's he doing? One of the answers that's going to come up regularly is he seems to be talking about the kingdom of God. He seems to be announcing the kingdom of God. Uh, scholars will say that Jesus inaugurates the kingdom of God. There's an already and a not yet reality of the kingdom of God. But Jesus begins the kingdom of God in a way that we can participate in. And way back, even centuries before Jesus, the rabbis used to say, when the kingdom comes, there's going to be certain things you can look for. Isaiah has a, a longer list than I'm going to give you now, but, but a couple of elements, or three in particular that you see in, in every list, is that the finger of God would move. There would be the action of Yahweh in the world. People would come to call God by name. That's the second thing. And then they would learn to follow the ways of God. So the finger of God would move. People would call God by name, and they would follow the way of God. You see Jesus referencing this in his kingdom ministry, ultimately all the way up to reenacting the Passover that brings us to salvation. So in the Exodus story, which... The Passover festival and the meal is a, is, a, is a remembrance of that story. In the Exodus story, you, many of us, right away, we recognize the 10 plagues. It's like, you know, you know, whether you're a believer or not, you've probably seen Charlton Heston or the Disney movie. Like, this is a dramatic power of a, of a divine being. The finger of God is moving, not least to Pharaoh and his advisors and magicians, but you also have some very specific revelations about the name of God. We're going to talk about that for just a moment uh, coming right up. And you have people beginning in a new way to follow the way of God. 
So I want to look at a few of these places. The first is Moses in the name of God. I hinted at this on Friday. I know not every one of you was there on Friday, or those of you who are listening online might not have been there on Friday. So we're going to cover a little bit of the same ground. But um, I also need to say this. So I, uh, um, I was tremendously helped in, in looking uh, again at the Passover um, by a book called The Exodus You Almost Passed Over by Rabbi David Foreman. And a Bible teacher um, named Marty Solomon turned me on to Rabbi by Foreman's work, and it was uh, truly, truly, uh, really helpful. Many of the discoveries uh, in this story were directed uh, by by this. So I want to begin with something Rabbi Foreman said uh, about that first encounter where uh, Moses has been wandering in the wilderness. You know, he's been working as a a shepherd um, for 40 years. So this is before he wanders in the wilderness with Israel. He has been on his own personal journey where, remember, he had the instinct to be a liberator, But he went about it out of his own resources, out of his own instinct, out of his own strength, and he ends up killing an Egyptian man, and then he has to flee for his life, and then he lives for 40 years as as a shepherd. And when God comes and confronts him, one of the first things that he has to get worked out, and Moses is very curious about it, is what am I supposed to call you? And so we have this, this uh, description of, um, of God introducing himself to, to, to Moses, and, and he says, I am Right? He, he says, I am what I am, basically. Or the, you know, the translation in Hebrew is, is closer to like, I will be what I will be. And so we have this, this name of God, I am, that seems to be newly introduced to us. And throughout a bunch of the story before that, people seem to call God all sorts of things. El Shaddai, Adonai, the Lord, the, the one who sees. It's almost like God has no real preference. Whatever you, you know, little sliver of ministry God has had in your life, you call God that, and, and God seems to be okay with that. But there seems to be something about this moment in particular that is important, that God wants to make sure that both Moses and his people and even Pharaoh know his name is I am. But there are some nuances in the translation that if you're just reading the NIV, we kind of get lost. And Rabbi Foreman um, points this out, and I'll just give you his words. He says, if you were Moses walking away from this conversation and someone asked you, so God appeared to you today. How interesting. What's his name? What would you tell them? Well, well, he will be what he will be. Clear enough. Or or actually, maybe he just will be. But you know, on second thought, forget all that. He's the God of our fathers. That's who he is. Sorry for the mix up there, but but I think that would be right. So it's a little bit of a confusing answer. God is, uh, God was, God God will be. Um, He's giving some type of name that's never been revealed before. And the way the rabbis would write this is, is just to write the the consonants without the vowel, and it's where we get the name Yahweh. Uh, It's from this introduction with Moses where he says, I will be what I will be. I have been, I am. It's like, it's something that seems to be transcendent. I, 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 Rabbi Foreman pointed something out that I'd never seen before, but if you, if you lay on top of each other uh, God's basically uh, descriptions of his name to Moses, so I, I have been, I am, and I will be, and you lay them on top of one another, like if you had a transparency. You remember when we used to have those in church, the transparencies, and that's where you got the lyrics from? If you had a transparency and you put the three Hebrew names that God gives for himself on top of each other, what you get is Yahweh. It's, it's pretty powerful to see. It's, 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 uh, Rabbi uh, Foreman says this, when I existed in the past, I was. When I'm existing now, I am. And when I exist in the future, I will be. 
These states don't overlap, but Yahweh seems to be conveying something else entirely, comprised of an overlap of the Hebrew words for was, is, and will be. It seems to denote the simultaneous experience of all three states. I was, it, it, it was, is, and will be experienced all at once. It was, is, and will be experienced all at once. That's not just being eternal. That's a whole new way of being altogether, which is why, after all, yud, hey, vav, hey is not an actual Hebrew word. The word itself, they just write the, the consonants because it's not an actual word because it's pointing to something. As he says here, it's not a word because what it would mean if it were a wor- word doesn't exist in our world. If your head is feeling a little scrambled right now, that's completely fine. I bet Moses' head was feeling a little bit scrambled, but God is trying to say, I see the whole picture. I am, outside, I am outside of the whole picture, and there's an entire new category uh, being introduced to you here. So when you and I want to understand something, when we want to define something, we break that something into smaller parts that you have some frame of reference for. I was trying to help my son, uh, Elijah, understand what the word conniption means. And I said, you know what it means to freak out? And he's like, yeah, okay. Now, you know what it means to freak out and to do that and, and be really angry when you freak out? And he's like, oh, okay, absolutely. All right, you put those two things that you know together, and you have conniption, this word that before this moment you didn't understand, and now you understand it. And God is saying, I want to give you who I am, but there's no requisite parts that you can pull together from your existing planes of existence that are going to make sense of I am. And so he gives, you, he gives them this name that is transcendent, this new reality. There's nothing to compare me to. But right at that moment, I would be like, okay, well, what are you really like? And then he says, but even though I am, I'm still the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there's a relational track record here. Somehow this transcendent God can be known, has been known, is going to be known. Well, why does he care about his name right now? I think he's about to go up against the mightiest power in the known world, the mightiest empire, Egypt. And Egypt uh, celebrates, uh, worships power. And God is, 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 has been known as El Shaddai, which it, the word El means power, power divine being. And he, he wants them to know that he's not just a power but he's a power full of relationship and longing for relationship. I think that comes through in the story, but right at the beginning, God makes a big deal about his name. I am, and I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So before we learn about this God's power, we need to know that this God is, about, is so much more than power. A second big part of the story is the conversation between Moses and Pharaoh. And it's, again, one of those conversations that just reading in the NIV, um, you can sometimes miss a, a, some of the nuances and some of the detail, and they, 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 they get pulled out. Um, it, when, when you come across something that feels weird to you, it can be really helpful to read it in a couple of different translations, and you're like, I don't know if I have time for that. Well, if, if you want to sort of find where the mysteries are, it's a really beautiful way to do it. But um, <clears throat> I asked this question on Friday. If you were God and you could do anything and you just demonstrated that you're outside of time and that you have all the power at your disposal and all the creativity, how many plagues do you think it would take you to set your people free from slavery in Egypt? He could have just 
frozen all the Egyptians for like a couple of hours and then, and then ushered them out really quickly, but he doesn't. There's something going on in the conversation between Moses and Pharaoh. And it seems like God is very interested in setting his people free, but also that he's very interested in what's going on in Pharaoh's heart and what's going on in the story of Egypt, and does power work this way, and does empire work this way, and what about all these rival gods and rival forces and rival powers that seem to have made the mightiest force, empire, nation in the world? An interesting place to get into um, how how bizarre the conversation, because there's a bunch of times where it it seems like uh, Pharaoh's ready to let the people go, and then he changes his mind, and sometimes it says Pharaoh changes his mind, and sometimes it seems to say God changes his mind. Sometimes Pharaoh hardens his heart. Sometimes it seems like God's hardening his heart. If you've ever been in a a Calvinist or or Arminian debate, you've probably talked about this moment. Who's doing what to Pharaoh's heart in in this situation? And our minds begin to scramble, but... I think it's really beautiful to consider something that I want to introduce right here. I want you to look at the two speeches that Moses gives to Pharaoh when he first shows up on the scene to tell him what Yahweh, this God whose name he just learned, has told him to do. First speech you find in Exodus 5.1, he says, thus Yahweh, God of Israel, sorry, thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, send out my people and let them rejoice before me in the desert. This is the first thing that Moses comes and says to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, if you read on, his reaction to that is, I don't know this deity, and I'm not letting you go. Let me be absolutely clear. The answer is no to your request. So Moses has two, two options at that, at that point, it seems to me, is that he could leave and go ask God what to do now. Hey, God, Moses said no, which he does a couple of times in the story. Uh, he could do that, or he could say, oh, oh, Pharaoh, you don't want to do that. You don't know about this Yahweh. You, bet, you, better, not, you better not get him too upset. He's going to come down, he could, he could up the ante. He doesn't seem to do either of those. Instead, he gives a little bit of a weird middling speech where he almost backs off of the first thing that he said. So speech two. Speech one, let's put it up there. Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, send out my people and let them rejoice before me in the desert. Okay, so whoever this God is, he has a name. He specifically calls Israel his people. He wants them to rejoice before him in the desert. So they're going to go out for some sort of party. Moses even puts a, a date to it. Give us three days. In speech two, the God of the Hebrews happened upon us. Let us go, please, for three days in the desert and sacrifice to our God. Otherwise, he might hurt us with the pestilence uh, or or with the sword. What is happening here? What's going on? I think this is proof that God is not just about uh, having his people let go, but that he's after the heart of Pharaoh. Because what uh, Moses essentially does is he begins to speak in a language that Pharaoh can understand in the pantheon of Egyptian gods. And so the, 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 the forces that Egypt worshipped and the forces that Egypt named and, 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 and worshipped as their gods... They were capricious. They were, they were um, uh, not predictable. You weren't sure how much you needed to do to get the crop to come in or to get the rains to come or to get the sun to shine in, 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 the, in the way you, you wanted. And so there were these powerful natural forces, but you never knew exactly where you stood with them. And so 
The idea of, of a God was nothing new to Pharaoh at all, but the idea of a personal God who wanted you to come out into the desert and party with him wasn't something he understood at all. And so Moses begins to put it in his language. Listen, you've got to let us go. Otherwise, he, he might hurt us. And so he tries to sort of speak Pharaoh's language to Pharaoh. And it, it, if anyone remembers, it, it fails completely. Actually, Pharaoh flips out and says, you know what? You got all this time to be sitting around and talking theology and thinking about what your God wants you to do. I'm going to raise the quota of bricks that you have to make. I'm not going to give you any straw. And, and their, their situation becomes that much worse. So basically, two visions of the world are at stake. Is God personal? Is God real? Can God be known? Would God possibly want people to rejoice with him? Or is God just one more? Is Yahweh just one more of these capricious forces in the world that we have no control over whatsoever, that we can't really predict? The rabbis say this, this incredible thing, which makes my head spin a little bit, and, and, and sometimes it's not the healthiest to, to, to go down ro you know, a road of speculation or a hypothetical, but basically the rabbis say, what if, what if, because um, you remember the sign that Moses gives where um, he's like, who, who are you anyway? What are you, what are you talking about? So Moses throws his staff down on the ground, what happens to the staff? I think you said it became a serpent, and that's exactly what happened. You got that correct. Way to go, everyone. And so um, right away, right, Moses throws his staff on the ground, and it becomes a serpent. And what do the, the uh, astrologers and the magicians in Pharaoh's court do? Same exact thing. They do the same here. So to say, hey, you've got some God who's got some power, yeah, we've got hundreds of those. This is no big deal. But the completion of that sign is really telling because when they all turn back into staffs after they've been snakes, which is mind-blowing on its own wild story, Moses or Aaron's staff swallows the other staffs. Right in the very beginning, before any of the plagues, is this picture that, hey, there is actually one God, and that's what this story is about. It's not about all these, these uh, these rival powers, it's about this one personal loving God who's, who's introducing himself to the world in a new way by setting his people free. And the rabbi suggests if Pharaoh had listened to this sign, let the people go for their three days out into the wilderness, that the story of the Exodus wouldn't have happened the way we have it happen. Think about that for a minute. What if the plagues hadn't been necessary because Pharaoh recognized the, the this personal God was doing something unique in the world. And he said, you know what? It's not, it's not right for me to, to restrict you from, from, from going to worship your God. Or maybe that could have been the first of a discovery. And then eventually, as he got to know more of the heart of this personal Yahweh, he would realize it wasn't right for him to keep slaves. It wasn't right for him to, to, to treat the Israelites this way. And he would have let them go on his own accord. Right? It's, it's a speculation. We have no idea what actually, you know, what actually would have happened if that, if that had gone down. But it's interesting to speculate that maybe the plagues wouldn't have been necessary, but they were. And it's not just one plague, though God could have done anything he wanted, seemingly, to set his people free. He goes systematically, step by step, through the gods that Egypt worshiped, through the rival powers confronting each one. You may have forgotten them, but uh, uh, um, 
The first one is the Nile, this source of their economic infrastructure that made their life possible and the way they lived it was turned to blood. And the magicians and astrologers, they recreate that sign. They turn water into blood as well. And then the frogs come, right? The frogs are the second plague. And the frogs are absolutely everywhere. And at each instance, Pharaoh sort of as the ruler of this land, he's not a heartless guy. He realizes devastation is coming to his people. There's frogs everywhere. I can't go anywhere without stepping on frogs. And he says to Moses, is there frogs? He says, is there any possible way that you can get rid of these frogs? And Moses says, when do you want them gone? Which I'd never noticed before. He says, when do you want the frogs to leave? Pharaoh could have said, right now, yesterday, please let them be gone. Pharaoh says something wild. He says, how about tomorrow? You get rid of the frogs tomorrow. There's this test that goes on between Moses and Pharaoh about the heart of God, about the reality of this power different from the other powers of Egypt. It's like he's saying, is your God really able to exercise his power whenever he wants? Is he able to do it? So it's not for Pharaoh. It's not specifically just about power. It's about precision. And so he says, can you turn the frogs off tomorrow? And sure enough, that's what happens. The third plague is lice, horrible. Um, and uh, this is the one that the magicians can't replicate. Um, they get pro- you know, progressive uh, here. The magicians can't rep- re- replicate it. The fourth plague is flies, or um, in some translations, the plague of wild animals, which how you combine, how you, how you could uh, be confused about whether it's flies or wild, wild beasts, I'm not sure. So it's either like wolves that come in hunting uh, animals and people, or it's flies, and, and uh, the translation uh, is up for debate there. You'll, you'll, you can read papers on, on the debate. The, the, uh, the fifth plague is the plague plague of livestock. And again, you have um, Pharaoh taking stock of the damage. And, and he doesn't even, he doesn't seem to care about what's happened to his livestock. He says, what about the livestock of the Israelites? How precise is this God? Does he know the difference between their cattle and our cattle? Then we've got the boils. You're like, where are you going with this? Somewhere, I promise, okay? The seventh plague God says to Pharaoh, or God says to Moses, this is the plague I'm going to send into Pharaoh's heart. So one at a time, he's been confronting these different gods in the Egyptian pantheon. And in the seventh plague, he says, I'm going to send a plague that goes right into Pharaoh's heart. And it's the plague of hail. And really, it's like, hey, listen, you've done frogs and lice and livestock at this point. Why is hail in particular going to be the one that goes into Pharaoh's heart? And there's something that the NIV makes you miss a little bit. It says that the hail came down and that there was lightning, that actually God had given a warning for Moses to give to Pharaoh that they could bring all their livestock and people inside because if they weren't inside, they were going to be struck dead by this hail. And it says there was, there, was, there was basically ice and lightning. But in the Hebrew, it says that inside the hail droplets, now there's a lot of mind-blowing stuff in this. So if this is the most shocking thing to you, you need to go back and read the story. But inside the hail droplets was fire. The hail had fire in it. Why is this such a big deal? Why is this the one that cuts Pharaoh to the heart? Because... In the Egyptian pantheon, they're always making deals with one of these gods and actually playing this god off the other. And the two gods who absolutely diametrically oppose would never work with one another is the god of fire and the god of ice. (laughs) And yet you have hail with fire in it. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh 
introduces moral language into the story. For the first time, he says, oh, I've sinned. I've cut against a real God here. I've cut against Yahweh. Wow, right? Exactly. Thank you. Someone's tracking with me, and I appreciate it. So then we have locusts and darkness, and then the last plague. And I think what I want to emphasize here is for God, he was, he was after setting his people free. But he was also after telling a story in the world that power for the sake of, uh, of crushing other people, power just for the sake of building empire, fa- power just for the sake of making your name great is not the story of the world. It's not what things are, are truly meant to be based on. And, and Pharaoh's obsession about precision comes all the way up to the last plague when he basically says, listen, Yahweh has said, if you will not release his firstborn, which he calls the nation of Israel firstborn, we're going to talk about that in just a second then it's going to cost you your firstborn. And Pharaoh's like, well, when? And Moses is vague. He basically says around midnight. Instead of tell- and it happens exactly at midnight. <laughs> What's the deal? He, he, I think he believes that Pharaoh would obsess about the, the time. <laughs> and if it was off by a couple of minutes, he, he would find some, some way of, of finding a loophole, as he seemed to have done over and over and over again. This is about two visions of the world, empire from Egypt to today. Empire will not bow to one personal God, even if they pay lip service to it. Yahweh calls Israel his firstborn. But Isaac wasn't the firstborn. Jacob wasn't the firstborn. What on earth is he talking about? How can he call Israel his firstborn? And the rabbis believe this is something that's happening in the story. We, we know for certain that God knew how to distinguish between Israel and Egypt when he kills the livestock, when the, when the different plagues come. So why is it that he has to have them paint the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their houses? Is God confused about where they live and where the Egyptians live? I don't think so at all. I think God is saying, you're my firstborn, and I'm, I'm having you be born into a new story, and you're becoming the firstborn, Right? Because Israel had a choice. God had done all this work to set up their rescue. But the instructions that Moses gave to the people is, if you want to participate, you slaughter the lamb, you spread the blood on the doorpost of your home, and that is how you will be saved. So establishing this picture that God has done all this work to set up the rescue, but we have to receive the blood of the lamb to become part of the firstborn. A powerful story, a powerful picture, powerful imagery in the biblical narrative. We have to participate in the blood of the lamb, receiving the blood of the lamb, application of the blood of the lamb, to join in the firstborn. There's another powerful picture of, I mentioned this on Friday, but you know, they didn't just spread the blood on one side. It covered all the sides of the doorpost. So the people are passing through this bloody gateway, then passing through the water. These are the exact images of a new birth. The firstborn by the blood of the lamb are called into a new birth and a new life. 
much of the rest of the story after they pass through the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds is uh, the people very slowly learning to, to live the way of God. Remember what I said, the kingdom, the rabbi said, the finger of God would move. People would learn to call God by name, and then they would learn to follow the way of God. Remember the baptism that we just celebrated? The blood of the lamb passing through the waters. A new life begins. This is the story God has been telling from the beginning. This is the story God is... And this is why God wasn't just after one exciting miracle to let his people go. He was after the heart of Pharaoh because he was after the heart of the world. We see this very same thing. We're closing, if you're wondering. We see this very same thing in the gospel story. After a long period of seemingly God not being terribly concerned about his name, once again, he sends angels to make sure they know what Jesus is supposed to be called. He's going to be the savior. Once again, we see power and precision, power and relationship at work. The people are like, you can heal people, you can feed people, come and be the king. And he's saying, I want to share my heart with you, I want to share my life with you. You're missing a little bit of the point here. He's after our hearts. Remember when Jesus talks with with the the rabbi who's come to find him in the night, Nicodemus, he says to him, you have to be born in this new way. Those who are born just of, uh, of water and blood have to be born of the spirit, this new birth. Remember the beginning of Jesus' story? The firstborn males are under threat again. Where does he flee? Egypt. So God calls his Messiah out of Egypt He passes through the first story of Jesus' ministry before he calls his disciples is what? He's baptized. He passes through the water again. He calls the 12. Why is that number important? Of course, he's he's giving a picture of reconstituting this spiritual Israel, not to replace the old covenant, but to be fulfillment and to continue this story that he's been telling from the beginning. The blood of the lamb. As he goes to the cross and he cries out, it is enough. We said on Friday that in the beginning of Genesis, they called God El Shaddai, the, the one, basically translated the one who knew when to say enough. And on the cross, Jesus bears the full cost of the covenant for you and for me to be family forever. Just as he was after Pharaoh's heart and Moses's heart, I want you to know without a doubt, he is after your heart. Think about all that they had been through. Think about all that you have just been through. Think about the most painful thing in your life right now. Think about the most hopeful thing in your life right now. What about a God who was and is and is to come? The great I am, transcendent, powerful God after your heart to cradle you like a loved one, to call you by name, to say you are mine. I don't know what this fall holds, but I know you can walk with this God into whatever is next. And I want, you to, I want you to know, as a pastor of this church, along with you, best we can, our hope is to walk with this God by the blood of the lamb, passing through the waters, learning his ways, presence, formation, and love. That's our vision. That's our heart as a church. The chance to be, we've, we've become family Passover and a celebration with a meal, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus with a celebration and a meal. How simple, a bath and a meal to commemorate the redemption of God that we've come to know his name. I want to tell you this, church. 
you, you don't need probably to be convinced of this, but there are so many rival powers after your heart. There are so many rival gods after your heart. There are many stories being lived out in our city, but there is a God that you can trust. He is a redeemer. He is a liberator. We said on Friday, Passover is about the blood, the covenant mercy of God. It's about purifying the rhythms of our life. It's about God setting us free in liberation. It is about new things being born. So I'm gonna ask you very simply, what rival, what rival powers might have hold of your heart and imagination in this season? What rhythms of your life still look like the rhythms of the world? And we live in the world. I, I don't mean there's not tons of overlap in how our lives and our neighbors' lives look, but I'm talking about where in particular do we know we're living out of another story. What has your heart? What story are you living in? Where do you need to remember that your enemy, as powerful as your enemy is, Egypt, Egypt no, di- no, no doubt, they, they were the most powerful empire in the world, and we see them in the story drowned under the water. How many of you need to remember that your enemy has lost its power over you? Who has your heart? What story are you living in? Do you know that the enemy has lost his power over you? And what is God calling new in your life in this season? Those are questions I want us to turn over as a church, as a people in this story. There are so many rival gods for your heart. There are so many stories being lived out in our city, but there is a Yahweh. There is a Jesus I think it's so interesting that it's three different names laid over one another that makes the name Yahweh. In the beginning of Genesis, come, let us make humankind in our image. There's this weird plurality throughout the whole story, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity expressing grace to us. This is central to who we are. He is a redeemer, and you can live in his story forever. This I am, this Jesus, the forever one. And I just want to invite you in the chaos of this world and all the headlines and all the division to just bring your heart to this God tonight. We've celebrated the bath. We're going to taste the meal. We're already nearing overtime. Isn't it good to be back in a church service where we're already running long? First time back. Let me pray for you that we would have the faith tonight to bring our hearts to this redeeming God in faith. Heavenly Father, I pray we would experience your embrace. God, you are not just a God of power. You are a God of embrace. You are not just just a God with, with many names. You're a God who knows our name. You're a God who knows how many hairs we have on our head. Your word mysteriously says that you're gonna give us a name that no one else knows, that you know us so detailed, so personally. That you have been telling this one story from the beginning, and you've shown it to us in so many ways, and we can trust you. God, have our hearts, have the rhythms of our life. Remind us that our enemy has lost his power because of the cross. Show us what you want to birth new in our lives and new in our church. God, we cannot do it. We don't want to do it on our own. Let us bring our hearts to you in Jesus' name this evening. Amen.